Well, we have reached the 18th book in our overview of Scripture. We have come to the first book of poetry, the book of Job. Now, while it comes as the 18th book, most scholars and historians believe that the book of Job is actually the oldest book in the Bible. His story predates Abraham, so that means that he comes before the Hebrew nation and, uh, and, and the Abrahamic covenant. He is considered to be one of the patriarchs uh, of the uh, Old Testament uh, in the early stages of the book of Genesis. The book itself is probably even older than Genesis as Moses wrote that. Job <clears throat> is considered to be a great man, and he, grew, he came from the land of Uz, according to the Scriptures, not to be confused with the land of munchkins, wizards, scarecrows, and yellow brick roads. The land of Uz is is probably located in what we would consider today the nation of Syria or the western edge uh, of Iraq. The book itself contains over 10,000 words, and it's really interesting to me that it is probably the most difficult book in the Old Testament to translate. So why a book that predates the Abrahamic covenant, a a book that's hard to translate, uh, a book that comes from some other sector of life? It's because the book has no equal when it comes to addressing suffering and adversity. Job's book and story does it best. 19th century Scottish author and historian Thomas Carlyle wrote concerning the book of Job, he says, there is nothing written, I think, in the Bible or out of it of equal literary merit. That alone should encourage us to read it. But especially when you know it helps us learn how to deal with adversity. Pain and suffering are as old as the discarded cores on the ground when Adam and Eve finished eating the forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden. And pain and suffering will not go away in this world until we go away. Only in heaven is the Father's promise realized. This promise that we read where it says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That only is fulfilled out of this world. I think of the young women that Stephanie just described, not really women, girls, as a matter of fact, who suffer as slaves of human trafficking and whose lives will be ruined unless they are rescued. They know adversity, pain, and suffering at the very core of their being. And they could understand the book of Job probably better than any of us in this room. But since suffering and pain and adversity are here to stay, we need to learn how to deal with it. And Job is a good teacher. His story, Job's story has an awesome beginning. Look at how he is described in the opening verses of chapter 1. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. Now, Job was first of all a good man, a godly man. He was blessed by God, as a matter of fact, respected by all the people around him. So you start off with the story, this is a great story. And then one day, one day, everything changed. And I do mean everything. And it changed without warning. 
Nothing that Job had held dear to his heart was left except for his wife. Everything was affected and impacted. Would you for a minute think of the person that is most valuable to you? The the person that means the most to you. And just think of here, one minute that person is with you, the next minute that person is forever gone. How are you going to feel? Your life is going to be devastated. Now, Now just think of what Job lost. And in the process of losing it all, he suffered great pain. He even lost his reputation to a certain degree because there's a guilt by association going on here. People who looked at Job and said, now there's a good man. There's a great man. Then you go through all of this loss and this kind of suffering and you think, oh my, maybe Job isn't so great after all. He's angered God. He's being punished. Maybe old Job had a dark side that none of us saw. No, he didn't. He was just as good a man, a great a man as he was before, uh, after the suffering as he was before. But people began to look at him different because those kinds of things don't happen if you're really a good person, right? The book of Job teaches us different. Look at everything he lost. Job lost his fortune. In one afternoon, Job's wealth was gone. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 1,000 oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of hired hands. All gone through devastation. Job lost his family. All gone. 10 children. He was a good dad. He loved and provided for them. And in minutes, tornado comes through, takes them all out at a party. Job lost his fitness. His physical health fell apart. His body was plagued with painful boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. The pain was so great that he despaired of life itself. And Job lost his fame. Went from being one of the greatest to one of the most despised and questioned people in his time. What's more, he was analyzed by four well-intentioned but misguided friends. You say, wow, why do I want to read a book like that? Here's the value. It's valuable because even though he lost his fortune, his family, his fitness, and his fame, Job never lost his faith. Through this whole ordeal, he maintains this relationship with God. Now, you read these words earlier this morning. Listen to them again. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Could you say that on the day when you've lost everything? May the name of the Lord be praised. In, verse, in chapter 13, he says, Though he slay me, yet will I trust and hope in him. Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. Through the whole ordeal, Job never lost his faith. Now, I wish this morning we had time to uh, explore this glimpse into the celestial realms and examine this dialogue that takes place between God and Satan. That's going to have to wait for another sermon on another day. But suffice it to say that Satan was the source of Job's suffering, and Satan's motive in this adversity was to cause Job to abandon his faith. Now, the good news out of that conversation was that God has placed limits on Satan. He, his power is not unlimited. And you say, really? Does it seem like there are limits here with Job? 
Well, no, it doesn't seem like there are limits. It seems pretty free reign to us when we read the story. But God understood Job's limitations and Job's faith and Job's determination. And Job is trusted by God to be faithful. And God's trust in Job was rewarded by Job's devotion to him. Though at times it may be hard to believe that God understands our limits, it is true. Satan has his limits in our life. God understands our limitations in this life. Both the lives of Job and his wife were spared. They were ravished, but they were spared because God knew the breaking point. Now, that reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. If this is not a verse you have marked in your Bible, if this is not one you're very familiar with, then I would suggest you, you mark this one. And on the tough days, on the painful days, on the suffering kinds of days, you turn to this and read it. Okay, here's what it says. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able and will, with the temptation, also provide you a way of escape. You understand what that's saying? It's saying God knows your breaking point. He will not let you be tested or tempted beyond that. He puts the limit there. He puts the no farther sign there. And he gives us a way to escape when the temptation comes. That's his promise. Which means, folks, that when we succumb to temptation, we have nobody to blame but ourselves. Now, in this story of Job, there are a couple different perspectives I want us to examine. First one is simply the human perspective. After the disaster strikes, Job is confronted by his wife and his friends, and they each have reached the same conclusion, the conclusion that we often reach, and it is simply this, Job, you are being punished. There is no other explanation for everything you're going through. You're being punished for some horrendous sin. Now, we can relate. I don't know how many times in ministry I've heard people say, what did I do to deserve this? Or why is God doing this to me? In exasperation, Job's wife said to him, Job, just curse God and die. Why are you hanging on to your integrity? And, and, and I know when we read that, we often think, boy, no. You know, she, that's not a really good wife to have alongside of you when, when you got somebody like that. Okay, would you... Would you cut her some slack? I want to cut Job's wife some slack because you, we oftentimes forget it was her children too. It was her wealth too. It was everything that belonged to her. Plus, she has to stand by and watch the one she loves most in this world suffer with all this pain, and she can't do anything to help. And if you've been married long enough or if you've been loving somebody long enough, then you know that sometimes to sit there and watch the one you love suffer is as painful as going through it yourself. Maybe at times and ways even harder. It still wasn't good advice. I know that. But you can understand where she's coming from. She's hurting as much as Job is hurting. And because it's bad advice, can I encourage you, be careful what you say to someone who is going through tough times. Sometimes we say the, the most thoughtless things. Oh, I had an uncle who had that surgery. God rest his soul, he died following the surgery. <laughs> you know, we, we think of people are going through, and we say things that just don't make sense. So if you don't know what to say, don't say anything, okay? Just keep your mouth shut, give them a hug, pat on the back, a firm handshake, share a tear. Those things will say more than words that may not be thought through. You see, all Job had left was his integrity. 
Everything else was gone. But he hung on to that spiritual integrity, maintained it all the way through. You read this verse also this morning, chapter 1, verse 22. In all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Oh, boy, that would be hard, wouldn't it? When the renowned preacher William Sangster learned he was dying of a fatal disease, he made four promises to his family. Number one, he said, I will never complain. Number two, I will keep my home bright. Number three, I will count my blessings every day. Number four, I will try to turn this into gain. Until the day that he died, he kept those four promises. Wow, that's spiritual integrity. Don't sacrifice your integrity just because you're hurting or going through tough times or adversity. Pain and suffering are temporary. Integrity must endure and be lasting. Now, Job's three friends arrive, and for the first week, they don't say anything. They just sit with him in his pain, and by their presence, bring comfort. That was the good news. And then after the week was done, they opened up their mouths, and that's when everything went downhill. Each argued their point from a different perspective, but all coming to the same conclusion. Eliphaz was sort of the mystic type. He said, you know, Job, he said, I, I, I think I got this message for you in a vision from God. Bildad argued his uh, from a standpoint of time-honored justice principles. God is just, Job, and what you're getting is what you justly deserve. Zophar pontificated on the consensus of human wisdom. Oh, Job, everybody knows that when you suffer like this, you've made God mad, and this is the punishment for it. Do you know that if we translate their names into their English equivalents, do you know what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar translate into? Mo, Larry, and Curly. <laughs> I have that on good authority from Hebrew scholars. Even Job had to deal with stooges in his life. Just because somebody is a friend doesn't mean they always have the right wisdom or advice for you. And ultimately, these friends were rebuked by God. As a matter of fact, God says, unless Job prays for you, I'm not going to forgive you. Guess what Job did? Being the good man, the great man that he was, he prayed for his friends that had filled him with this unwise counsel. That gives you a clue into the integrity of Job, doesn't it? I'm telling you this morning, be careful who and what you listen to. Just because something's in print or the majority supports it or someone says, this is from God, doesn't necessarily make it so. And notice throughout the book, would you? God is blamed, but Satan never is. In the dialogue of chapters 3 through 37, there is a lot of speculation about God's discipline, a lot of speculation about God's judgment, even talk about God's mercy. But there is no mention of Satan as the source of suffering. He is so subtle. Jesus had this to say about Satan in John chapter 8. He said he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him when he lies he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. You see, one of Satan's greatest tools is his subtlety. He counts on us being gullible and easily misdirected. 
at an Idaho Falls science fair. One of the students had a science project where he surveyed 50 people and asked them to sign a petition that was demanding strict control or the total elimination of the chemical dihydrogen monoxide. And this is the evidence he presented for it. It is a major component in acid rain. It can cause severe burns in its gaseous state. Accidental inhalation can kill you. It decreases effectiveness in automobile brakes, and it's been found in the tumors of cancers, uh, terminal cancer patients. Out of the 50 people, 43, just hearing those ramifications, signed the petition. Six people were undecided. Only one person out of 50 knew that dihydrogen monoxide is H2O, water. And everything he said about water is true. You'll get burned in its steam-like state. Uh, it's a part of acid rain. You, you inhale it, you're, you're, you're going to die. Everything he said was true. But who wants to get rid of water? You see, we're so gullible, we're so taken that we don't check out the truth. I'm here to tell you, when somebody tells you something, check it out. Make sure it really is from God's word. Don't be gullible and forget the source of your suffering. Never get tangled up in Satan's lies. Too many people have erroneously concluded, if I'm good enough, if I'm great enough, if I'm religious enough, I won't suffer. Well, Job was good, he was great, and he was devoted to God. Job suffered, and so will you, and so will I. Get used to it. It is a part of this world. Job had a fourth friend, Elihu, who came to offer his perspective. God did not rebuke him along with the others. Though his view of suffering was also flawed, he suggested that God could refine Job through the suffering. And that's when I see God's greatest ministry during the times of adversity, pain, and suffering in our lives. Is that while God is not the source of it, he is the one that can take it and out of it, turn something good. C.S. Lewis wrote, we are promised sufferings. They are a part of the program we are even told, blessed are they that mourn. So get with the program. Expect the suffering and the tough times and the adversity to come. Know that God is not the source, but he is the only one who can take that moment and turn it to good. Now that's the human perspective. Here's the divine perspective. Throughout the book, Job longs to know the reason for his suffering. After all, Job had done his best to honor God <clears throat> and cannot understand God's silence through this whole ordeal. Have you ever prayed and prayed earnestly and God remained silent? I, I have. I don't know about you, but I have. And sometimes God's silence is deafening, and it causes us to wonder, is he listening? Does he care? Do I matter? And then finally, we get to the end of the book, and in chapter 38, <clears throat> the dialogue changes from human dialogue to a divine dialogue. In verse 1, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man, Job. I will question you, and you will answer me. Now, that's all I would have needed to hear. I would have said, good to go, God. Good to go. I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> For the next uh, th three to four chapters, Job endures this 
not an interview. It's more like an inquisition from the Almighty. The, the answers are sort of rhetorical in nature because there, there really is no answer. The answer is obvious. This is God. Listen to some of the things he says. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? God even uses sarcasm. Did you catch it there? Oh, surely you know, Job. Of course, Job had no answers for these questions. Verse 22, have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What's the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel in the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm? Job, can you answer any of these questions? He can't. He is silent before God. And when God finishes, Job is still speechless. He doesn't have an answer, but he's come to this conclusion, I don't need an answer. All I need is the Almighty God in my life. The last chapter is the happy ending to the story. It relates that Job was blessed more at the end than he was at the beginning. His wealth is doubled. He was again blessed with ten children, and this time the Bible says that his three daughters were the most beautiful girls on the face of the earth. You think, oh, I, I like happy endings. Well, I do too, but do you think Job ever stopped missing his first 10 children? Do you think for one moment the love that he had for them, the pain that he'd suffered in losing them ever departed from his mind? Don't you know that as he grew up this second family, he was often thinking, I wonder what my oldest son would be doing right now. You see, happy endings don't take away the pain in the middle. They just remind us that God is at work and only He can mend the heart and soul. Time does not heal wounds. God does. In a World War II concentration camp, these words were found scrawled on a wall that read, I believe in love even when I don't feel it. I believe in God even when He is silent. So when your questions go unanswered, when you're going through the toughest times of suffering and pain, just remember, God is still there. The deepest place on the face of the earth is the Marianas Trench in the Pacific Ocean, over seven miles deep. It would take an anchor in free fall over an hour to reach the bottom of the trench. God is there. A billion light years beyond where the Hubble telescope can see, God is there. When you arrive for that medical test this week, God is already there. When you and your spouse show up at the counselor's office to genuinely with a genuine desire to save your marriage, God is already there. When you walk up to the casket to look at the one you love more than life itself, God is already there. No matter where or when or what your pain, God is there to meet you. Because you see, he knows suffering better than any of us. He paid our price. He's been there before you. And his story is reflected in Job's story. As a matter of fact, all of our stories reflected in Job's story. It has this tremendous beginning, then the middle part falls apart because of sin, and then in the very end, it's better than it was even at the beginning. And, and here's the truth, we are in the middle part. We know how it began, 
we're living through the brokenness by sin and know that the day is coming when it will be better than anything you can imagine. And the only way you're going to get through the middle part is if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. So do you. Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives. Indeed, do you. While we stand and while we sing, you come to the Christ.